Good, we're already recording. Yeah. Okay. We don't want to miss any golden banter. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's why I'm hitting record, because I thought I heard you singing Breakfast at Tiffany's by Deep Blue Something when I entered the room. Oh, that was me. But I was singing Breakfast at Jeremy's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, founding member of America's hottest new cover band performing classic pop songs with a traditional British folk twist. We're called Steel Eye Dan. Oh. Oh. Wow. You guys like that? I do. All right. That was very good. Well... I'm co-host Jeremy. I have a much less impressive title, but I am uh, the floor supervisor of uh, Jacob Selner Furniture Industries. That doesn't make any sense to anyone but me because I'm watching my roommate Jacob put together a table as I'm doing this. <laughs> well, now it makes <laughs> oh, so. sense to everyone, so thanks for being <laughs> inclusive. Yeah, now it all makes sense. I don't like to keep my inside jokes inside, you know? Yeah. You're, you're kind like that. It's another title that was well thought out in advance, too. Yes. I've been working on that. <laughs> Workshopping it. Running it past my editors. <laughs> Market testing. Let's draw this out. Let's draw this out just a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that it was like off the charts with the focus groups or? Some of them. Yeah. <laughs> the ones who know what they're doing. Yeah. The ones who can appreciate a good table loved it. <laughs> Mesa. Well, I am co-host Peter Cook, Mood Indica. Ooh. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. You're referencing both jazz and jazz cigarettes. <laughs> yeah. Rolling them up in one. <laughs> my goodness. Well, guys, it's my week to talk about a record. Yeah. And you both know what record it is. True. And probably most of our audience does too. So it's not much of a surprise to tell people that we're going to talk about Duke Ellington and his orchestra doing Ellington Indigos from 1958. Not Mood Indigo. Don't get confused out there. (laughs) Yeah, there are many confusing things related to the Duke Ellington catalog of music. And we'll just we'll just leave it at that. There's thousands and thousands of songs. <laughs> yeah. True or true or false, Sean? Duke Ellington has put out more records than the continent of Australia. <laughs> I feel like that's got to be true. There's probably a few other continents that you could throw in that bag too, and he's still above them. Yeah. Well, where are we going to start, Sean? We're going to start. With actually just three quick things before I play the first song. Duke Ellington has often been called the greatest American composer, which is a title that I cannot argue with. And I would say that Duke also has the distinction of having recorded more perfect albums than probably 
any other artist ever has recorded albums well yeah exactly (laughs) is that factual um i mean you know everyone's definition of a perfect record is going to be a little bit different but like if you like the general stuff that duke ellington is doing then i think you'll probably agree that he has more completely flawless records than any other musician also i believe this is the first pulitzer prize winning artist on i'd buy that for a dollar really is it is it can anybody think of another prize winner wait did that one newscaster get one john hambrick did oh maybe well if Um, only we knew our own history of this podcast so (laughs) possibly Uh, the first pulitzer prize winning artist to be featured on i'd buy that for a dollar and we are going to kick things off right now with side a track one solitude featuring an opening opening solo line from duke ellington himself on piano not at all how I remember Duke Ellington sounding. I was very surprised listening to this record because uh, I mostly remember Duke Ellington for his big band, very full, kind of bombastic almost arrangements. So that was not that at all. No, and there's really not much of that type of big band music on this record at all. There's plenty of Duke Ellington material that is more of that up-tempo, bombastic, huge orchestra sound, but one of the things that 
always set Duke Ellington apart was his ability to make a large orchestra sound like a small group whenever he wanted. And oftentimes at like, you know, a moment's notice kind of thing. Like it can be full orchestra and then all of a sudden just drop down into this quiet moment. And he, he pulled off those dynamic shifts better than probably anybody else. Yeah, the dynamics are the thing that most caught my attention. And honestly, kind of, I had this connection listening to it of sort of a through line from Ravel that we talked about before with the like very soft and shifting dynamics and kind of long melodies, like long Mm -hmm. complex melodies. I don't know. I saw some parallels there that I'd never really picked up on. Well, you are not alone in that comparison. In doing research for this episode, I saw multiple other uh, jazz critics and fans compare him to Ravel specifically. So Mm. good job. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I'm impressed, Jeremy. Do I get a gold star? You you fully get a gold star. Yeah, you get another one. one, Yeah, that's two. (laughs) Yes. You got two gold stars. Keep track. (laughs) Peter, what. Where were you at with Duke Ellington coming into this episode? Were you surprised by this sound, or were you a little more familiar with Duke's catalog? The main album that I know by Duke Ellington is Masterpieces by Ellington. I think that's the name of it. Yeah. Which was released in 1950 on Columbia. I believe it was his first proper LP, and despite having, you know, he had been around for <laughs> quite some time before that, but... um. That was it took them that long to get out a proper LP by him. And that's not that dissimilar to what we're hearing here. It might have a there might be a larger band on that one. But overall, it, it's this isn't too different. I think there's a couple of the same pieces even. Yeah, actually I've I've kind of always thought of this album and that one as kind of companion pieces, even though they're a few years apart, because they do have very similar vibes and some of the same material as well. They're both really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bought that when it was reissued on CD in the mid two thousands. But honestly, that's about my extent of knowingly giving Ellington attention. Mm-hmm. Like I'm sure I'm familiar with other work of his if I heard it. Yeah, I, I think for a long time I had a similar idea of Duke Ellington as Jeremy did. It was just kind of that generic, bombastic, big band sound, which is not something that's ever really appealed to me or probably many people from our generation. But I remember just being at the record store, putting on records I hadn't heard before, and we had just gotten a big Duke Ellington collection in. I was like, you know, I know this guy is important. I should just listen to a few records and see if one stands out to me. And the more I listened, the more I started to realize that I actually really liked pretty much everything I heard by him. And he was quickly becoming one of my all time favorite artists and has been ever since. And this album in particular has always just stood out to me as one of my personal favorites from his catalog. So we're going to change our format just slightly with this episode. I'm going to be talking less biographical info on Duke Ellington and trying to focus a little more on the actual music and this album and the lineup that was on this record. So let's dive into talking about that last song a little bit. You sure you don't want to cover 60 years of his career? 
<laughs> in this. Yeah, I mean the the man was born in 1899 and started performing as a teenager and then formed the Duke Ellington Orchestra in 1923. So it's like unless we were trying to do like a three or four part Duke Ellington episode series, there's just like no way I could even try and do it justice. So we're trying something different. Just focused on the music. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that's really cool about that song is the longer unaccompanied piano solo is actually kind of unusual for Duke Ellington. He usually acted more as the band leader and the arranger and was kind of a background role in his actual piano playing. Although he's a absolutely brilliant piano player. A couple of things I really like about his piano playing that are featured really well in that section is he has this cool method of adding chromatic notes in between the uh, the regular notes of the scale. And he does that in a way to kind of give it more depth and more feeling. He also just has this perfect level of dynamic touch and kind of a fluid tempo when he wants it. And that intro, I think, is pretty amazing example of that. Most definitely. There's a, a quote by Duke Ellington that I think also kind of applies to that that vibe the quote is art is dangerous it is one of the attractions when it ceases to be dangerous you don't want it oh man he likes his art like he likes his edginess (laughs) to kellington the original edgelord (laughs) (laughs) but no i mean it's kind of hard to listen to this mellow big band jazz and think of it as dangerous in any way But he's making a lot of choices on here that were far from the norm. You know, a lot of these big band jazz groups were pretty much strictly dance groups playing, you know, dance halls and uh, fancy dinner halls and things like that. So the music they'd be playing would have to kind of appeal to a wide range of people. So there's not a lot of adventurous choices in that area of music usually. So the fact that he would add these notes off the scale and take interesting new directions with music and his arrangements of songs, you know, took courage. It was kind of like dangerous decisions and it often worked for him. Especially for an established dude like that. I don't know when you're, when you're on top, you often can't make those kinds of decisions. You're kind of risking losing your audience and isolating you know, people who like you when you do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Not to mention someone who's like more than four decades into their career at this point. <laughs> Most people who have been performing music that long are not trying to make any kind of uh, abnormal choices or take any risks. You know, they're just kind of coasting. But he was still innovating throughout his entire career. The other thing that I love is he often will have kind of unexpected chord voicings when he's playing like you kind of have an idea of where you think the song would normally go and then he'll change it just slightly and make it a little more colorful a little more interesting than you were necessarily expecting yeah there's a bridge like jeremy commented our listeners would have heard this but jeremy asked if uh ellington taught charles mingus to do this and there is i I think mingus to maybe took inspiration from those odd choices that Ellington makes and went a step further with it or a couple steps further with it even. Yeah. And I had heard Mingus talk in interviews before about how 
if you really paid attention to the history of jazz, the stuff that was happening in the more avant-garde scene of the 60s isn't all that much of a surprise because you had guys like Duke Ellington who were incorporating that into their arrangements decades beforehand. What year is Black Saint and Sinner Lady? Let's see. Early 60s? That's the one that made me wonder about that. Right. That definitely Mm -hmm. has some Duke Ellington vibes to it. That was 63. So you're looking at five years after this record. Yeah, that makes sense that he would have. I mean, obviously, I'm sure that Mingus was more familiar with just the (laughs) familiar with more than just this Ellington album. But yeah, I can I can definitely hear where it would have gotten there by 63. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You guys remember in the Errol Garner episode how one of his big things is he would have musical cues for the rest of his band. You know, he'd have these long unaccompanied sections and it would just be like a, you know, a stronger downbeat on the piano or something. And the band would pick up on that. That was also a big thing that Duke Ellington did a lot. And you can hear that in that song about a minute and a half in the notes just become more rhythmic and stronger. And the band knows that's the spot to come in. Yeah. Which he was kind of renowned for having a, just like a really good control over his orchestra and could, you know, lead the whole thing with a simple musical cue or just a a quick lift of the finger. Never had to like really fully orchestrate like a lot of other band members were doing or a lot of other band leaders, I should say. Mm -hmm. Not our only connection to the Errol Garner album either. Exactly. There's a, he does a rendition of autumn leaves on here. A similar track. That's right. Well, we will get to Autumn Leaves on this album in a little bit. First, let's move on to track two. The song is called Where or When and features a solo by saxophone player Paul Gonzalez. Thank you. 
hardly tell that that's a 16 piece band playing. Yeah. There really was just like no one else that could make an orchestra sound like that at that time period. I almost started uh, thinking of some of the jazzier scores in uh, Chinatown that Jerry Goldsmith. Oh yeah. That movie. Definitely. Um, Well, Duke was an early pioneer of jazz film scores as well. He had a big one, kind of a groundbreaking score to the film Anatomy of a Murder, the James Stewart film, if you've ever seen mm. that one. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen I, that one. I don't think I've seen that one. It's good. And the the score is, is really cool. I was reading that it was like the first time that there was a jazz score to a film that wasn't just kind of a like a character of jazz music. Like it was real jazz music composed for a film and people were pretty blown away by it. It was pretty revolutionary. Interesting. So that was Paul Gonzalez doing the saxophone solo on there. I'd seen a few different people, including the uh, back of this record jacket, describe his tone as vaporous, which I think is a perfect description of his style. Wait, he did a vaporwave? <laughs> the original vaporwave artist, Paul Gonzalez, <laughs> 1958. Dang. It just so perfectly captures the dreamy mood and atmosphere of this record, though. And the thing I love so much about his saxophone on this track is that it seems to kind of effortlessly effortlessly drift between leading and blending in with the band at different points. Agreed. Paul, a little history on him, he joined the group in 1950, replacing arguably the most famous member of the Duke Ellington Orchestra, Johnny Hodges, who had been with the orchestra since 1928 and then left to pursue a solo career in 1951. And then Paul remained in the group even after Johnny Hodges came back in 1955. And Paul is very notable in the Duke Ellington Orchestra as being the one who performed the legendary 27-chorus solo between the songs Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue at the Newport Jazz Festival in 1956. Are either of you by chance familiar with that infamous jazz concert? I'm not. No, no, I, I uh, know more about when uh, Mahalia Jackson performed with the Duke Ellington and his orchestra at the 1958 one, because she performed twice at that one. Yeah, that was another big one for him. His 1956 performance was very critical and gets talked about a lot in jazz history. At the time, his orchestra was kind of losing popularity and not really making a whole lot of money. And it was seeming like it was going to all fall apart. You know, like his, uh, his star saxophone player, Johnny Hodges had left along with two other key players and he really could barely afford to pay people anymore, which is because after world war two, most orchestras were forced to break up as the format was not becoming financially viable anymore. Duke Ellington's orchestra was one of the only ones that really survived and kept going. And he did that by subsidizing the cost of his live band with his substantial songwriting royalties, seeing as how he had composed over a thousand songs and his songs were often covered by other popular artists. So he was able to keep the band going his entire life, mostly due from that. That's like the opposite of nowadays when bands have to play live to be able to make any money and then their actual songs are not worth anything right yeah the uh the landscape is constantly changing in the world of music it seems 
the other obstacle is that by the 1950s, interest in big band jazz was quickly declining in favor of smaller groups and more modern styles like bebop. You hit 1956, Duke Ellington and his orchestra are kind of these all but forgotten dinosaurs of jazz. And they get a prime slot on the Newport Festival just because, you know, they're they're veterans of the music. And Paul Gonzalez does this just incredible high energy solo in between these songs over the course of 27 choruses and the crowd is just whipped up into such a frenzy of excitement over this that it just became such a talked about gig and then released as a famous live album that Duke shortly after became one of only five jazz musicians to be featured on the cover of Time magazine because of just all of the swell of popularity that resulted from this one concert and basically this one saxophone solo in the middle of the concert <laughs> that's where uh prince got the inspiration for that while my guitar gently weeps solo right yeah basically <laughs> it was it was his <laughs> attempt to recreate it so i think there's just a couple key reasons why duke ellington was able to be basically one of the only jazz orchestra band leaders to keep that format going throughout his entire career up into the 70s. One, he was an early pioneer of the concerto format, which for those that don't know is a composition for a solo instrument accompanied by an orchestra. He was doing that in the 20s and 30s before people really used that format in big band. For the most part, it was just, you know, like we said, that kind of bombastic everyone's playing all at the same time. So he was perfecting this style decades ago. He also, as we said, had a level of dynamic control, which could make a large orchestra sound like a small group at a moment's notice. So he could really fit in with these, this changing landscape of jazz. And finally, virtually all newer and especially forward-thinking jazz musicians revered Ellington and were heavily influenced by him along with many of his band members. Despite his decline for a few years in the early 50s, he was still in good shape to make the comeback that he did in 56. And this record, along with many other records he was making during this late period of his career, I think are some of his crowning achievements. Yeah, this was far and away the best Duke Ellington I've heard in my life. Uh, especially, are we doing the song Autumn Leaves or Dropping Leaves? What's it called? Autumn Leaves, yep, we are going to get to that. Yeah, that's maybe my favorite song I've heard in a long time. All right, well, we're going to play one more song before that. Before we get to Autumn Leaves, we're going to jump over to Side B, track one, and play the song Prelude to a Kiss, which features an incredible solo by the before-mentioned Johnny Hodges on alto saxophone.
so moody. So moody. So that was the great Johnny Hodges on alto saxophone doing the featured solo on that track. And I just wondered if you guys had noticed any key differences in his playing from Paul Gonzalez, who was the player on the previous track that we listened to. I think Johnny might be a little sexier. That and or he may have invented emo. <laughs> so many inventions credited to this record and these players. I would I would say that one was more noir. Ooh. The one we just heard it, it, in in a sexy way too. Yeah, smoky. Mm-hmm. He does have a little bit more of that sexy sax man kind of vibe going on there. I wouldn't give you the skin off a grape. <laughs> uh, I think both players definitely share some similar influences and similar approaches. Um, they obviously both play different instruments. Paul Gonzalez was a tenor saxophone player and Johnny Hodges was an alto saxophone player. But uh, one of the things Johnny Hodges was known for was his flawless tone, wide vibrato, and his distinctive ability to slide between notes. Often, you know, saxophone players are just jumping note to note with some vibrato, but he had this amazing ability to just like make it make the saxophone more of a fluid almost trombone like instrument at times and he, it was a widely imitated style that he pretty much pioneered mm. i can certainly say that it's a familiar sound but i don't have the i didn't never have the context for where it originated one of the places is right here johnny hodges prelude to a kiss the other thing i love about johnny's playing is that it can be so delicate or sexy and yet occasionally can get just like really fierce. And that, that ties in well with the other thing I love about this track is that it's an example of how Duke really excelled at writing arrangements specifically for, to make his soloist shine based on whatever his band members were at the time or who was getting the featured solos on these tracks. Duke was often rewriting and making subtle arrangement changes to these songs. He had this like really close connection with his band members and knew just how to arrange a song to make it fit perfectly and just let his players, you know, just fly. That's kind of a producer like skill. Definitely. Before, you know, that kind of uh, production was around. It, it seems yeah. he was uh, arranging for a certain voice. That's interesting. I think that was band leaders' roles back then. Then kind of became a producer role. Yeah. So as we said, Johnny Hodges was probably the most famous player to ever be in the Duke Ellington Orchestra and was a very long-time member. Benny Goodman once said that Johnny Hodges was the best alto player he'd ever heard. And two other people that were big admirers were John Coltrane and Charlie Parker. Never heard of them. <laughs> well, you might have some learning to do. <laughs> two of my favorites. At Johnny Hodges' passing, Duke Ellington wrote this as part of his eulogy. Johnny Hodges was never the world's most highly animated showman or greatest stage personality, but a tone so beautiful it sometimes brought tears to the eyes. This was Johnny Hodges. This is Johnny Hodges. Well, you guys want to hear another song? Yeah. All right. It's the one is that it we've been leading up leaves? to. <laughs> it's Autumn Leaves, baby. 
So good. Featuring violin solo by the trumpeter Ray Nance. And later on, actually, I don't know if we're going to be able to get the, to the vocals in this clip. We'll probably figure it out. There are vocals by Ozzy Bailey. Surprise, halfway through the track. Let's get into it. two on this podcast with renditions of autumn leaves that i not only like but love i said on the errol garner episode that it's never really been one of my favorite standards and yeah that i thought the errol garner one was my favorite this one surpassed it this one's whoa incredible. oh yeah this one blew that one away that i mean that haunting <laughs> violin and the vocal's good too. You know what little we heard of it. Mm-hmm. One thing that's interesting to me about this record is that 
most of the selections on here are not only old songs, whether Duke wrote them or other people wrote them, but they're also songs that he'd been performing for a very long time for the most part. I feel like most artists this far into their career, if they're, you know, going through their greatest hits, it usually kind of loses the feeling and just becomes like a cheesy soulless retread. Whereas with Duke Ellington, it seems like every time he does a song or the longer he performs it, he's just refining it and presenting the material in its perfected form. And I think that Autumn Leaves is probably the best example on this record of that kind of energy. And you said the violin was the trumpet player. That breaks my mind. I know, right? So that was Ray Nance, who was another key player in the Duke Ellington Orchestra. He'd been with the group since 1940 and was hired primarily as a trumpet player to replace uh, one of the big early stars of the orchestra, Cootie Williams, who, you know, Duke had written plenty of songs for, specifically Concerto for Cootie was a often heralded masterpiece in the earlier Duke Ellington catalog. So anyway, you know, there's a lot of hype behind the player that Ray Nance is replacing. And one of the first recorded songs that Ray Nance does with the group after joining in 1940 is a song called Take the A Train that came out in 1941. And then the song quickly became the band's theme song. Like they performed it at every concert they played for the rest of their career. And specifically Ray Nance's trumpet solo on that recording went on to become one of the most influential trumpet solos of all time. And yet he's just slaying on the violin as well on this album. It's just not even fair. <laughs> Take the eight train home. <laughs> he's also a great singer too. Like he doesn't do any of the vocals on this record, but what a great talent. Who's the guy that did the vocals on that? Those were also astoundingly good. That is a vocalist named Ozzy Bailey, who had fairly recently joined the Duke Ellington Orchestra and was kind of noted not really as being a jazz singer, but more of a slow ballad type singer. What's interesting about Duke's selection, about bringing Ozzy into the band, is that he didn't really identify as a jazz musician himself. Duke Ellington liked to think of his music as beyond category and preferred to think of it in the broader context of American music than as simply jazz. I think this album, the more you listen to it, you really got to think of it in like a classical music context. As we, you know, we talked about the comparisons to Ravel and everything, but this was way beyond any like normal jazz record that was happening. This is like truly timeless, amazing music. Transcategorical. Mm-hmm. Trans transcategorical. That's what uh this heat call their music. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> One thing that Peter had pointed out before recording this is that the violin does have kind of a slightly maybe amateurish or raw quality to it that honestly I think just makes it work even better in this context. Yeah. And then thinking of him as a trumpet player who also plays violin, I think it it makes his approach to violin different than what you would typically hear. There is some parts of it that are kind of reminiscent of trumpet lines. Mm-hmm. Also, all of the violin on that track was completely improvised too, which is just even more amazing. Yeah, the sensibility is much more that of a trumpeter than a violinist. The, mm-hmm. the note choices 
It's like it kind of it almost sounds like Herb Alpert through a violin, you know, <laughs> who, who probably you know was influenced by a lot of this stuff. Yeah, definitely. We're just about done with this episode. Uh, you guys want to hear the uh, recommended artists playlist that I made? Yeah, do it. So there's even more Duke Ellington on this playlist than I would typically put from an artist just because yeah, there's a lot of other artists you can listen to if you like Duke Ellington, but there's also hundreds and hundreds of Duke Ellington records that you can listen to. So I put a few that um, are closer to this time period and have a similar uh, vibe with the style. So there's songs from the records blues in orbit Latin American suite, which is one of my personal favorites. Duke Ellington meets Coleman Hawkins. There's some Ellington Uptown on here. I put the famous diminuendo in blue from Ellington at Newport 56 and a few other records by him. There's also artists featured on here, such as Louis Armstrong, Art Tatum, Barney Kessel, Kat Anderson, who is another orchestra member, Dexter Gordon, Lester Young, who's another very influential early saxophone player. I put a solo track by Paul Gonzalez, as well as some other work by Johnny Hodges. Count Basie Orchestra is on there. Sidney Bechet, who was a one-time member of the group and a pioneer of the early New Orleans style of jazz. So that is on Spotify. You can find it by searching I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word, to hear this and every other playlist from season two. Did you put any Cab Calloway on there? Ooh, I did not, but that... That could definitely be added. Yeah, he replaced Duke Ellington. Well, Duke Ellington left the Cotton Club, and Cab Calloway was the replacement band leader there. Uh. Cotton Club is a really pretty interesting uh, thing to read up on if y'all are trying to get into the history of Duke Ellington and jazz kind of earlier than this record would have been. But Yeah. That was Duke's first big break, was his regular gig at the Cotton Club. That was what started it all for him as far as his successful career. There's so many interesting elements to Duke Ellington, the man, and his music, and his orchestra, and his impact on society and music in general. You know, there's also lots to do with the way he was treated as a black man in America performing these songs at this time. So many areas we can go, and if you were at all interested in this record, I highly recommend doing a deep dive into Duke Ellington, and I'm sure at some point we'll probably feature even more of his music. Yeah, funny enough, it was the pop-punk band, The Descendants, name-dropping Ellington in a song as a thing to be proud of that comes from the United States of America. (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, that compelled me to check him out. Many years ago. There you go. <laughs> Take them from anywhere we can get them. Well, I believe it's time for final thoughts. Jeremy, any final thoughts? Duke Ellington late period shreds. That's true. It's very, very true. And it's it's right in that like sweet spot of maybe my favorite era of jazz. Like right as it was getting weird but not so weird that Sean likes it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, another thing I should mention from the playlist, this record came out the same year as another very, very famous jazz record, Something Else by Cannonball Adderley, mm. and it was basically the Miles Davis band at that point. And they also have a really, really good version of Autumn Leaves on that record, and also a version of the song Dancing in the Dark, not the Bruce Springsteen song. We might have to have an Autumn Leaves showdown at some point. Mm. <laughs> That'll find be every good version of it. The culmination of this podcast, the Autumn Leaves <laughs> Showdown. I don't know, as far as final thoughts, uh, it's just a good reminder for me and maybe our listeners too that I think Ellington's a ubiquitous name that a lot of people aren't that familiar with. It's uh, culture yourself. Don't be afraid of it to, you know, just because it's, it's, uh, from well before your time doesn't mean there isn't something there for you, you know? And, and this, I think I like this one a little bit more than, than masterpieces by Ellington, the one that I was mainly familiar with, uh, going into this, they're very similar, but yeah, I don't know. I, uh, that one's like four tracks long and they're all very lengthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas, uh, this one was a little more concise. Yeah, that makes sense. Also, I must note that there is a track missing on the stereo version of this record. If you have the mono version, there's another song which features Ray Nance on trumpet. They released simultaneously, not sure why they decided to leave a track off of the stereo version. But um, this is also one of the few really good early Columbia 6i record pressings that you can get in the dollar bin. Uh, for people that don't know, that was the, the earlier Columbia label that is often prized for its sound quality. I wonder if Ray Nance is related to Jack Nance from Eraserhead. Probably. Or Larry Nance Jr. from the Cleveland Cavaliers. <laughs> also likely. Could be. Yeah. We're going to have an Autumn Leaves showdown and a Nance family tree. <laughs> And the, and the leaves will fall from the tree thrilling episode for our listeners yeah oh my goodness all right well my final thought is another duke ellington quote perhaps his most famous quote he once said there are simply two kinds of music good music and the other kind the only yardstick by which the result should be judged is simply that of how it sounds if it sounds good it's successful if it doesn't it has failed well, damn, I think that's a good note to leave things on for this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support us and get bonus content in return, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash I'd Buy That Podcast. My name is Peter Cook. My name's Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And myself and the other boys in the podcast would like you to know that you are very beautiful, very sweet, and we do love you madly. All right, we're going out on Willow Weep for Me, Side B, Track 2. Shorty Baker, the trumpet player, is the featured soloist on this one. Thanks for listening. <laughs>